Uh, on this passage, uh, Jesus' miraculous calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee is found in Luke's gospel in the 8th chapter, verses 22 through 25, if you want to uh, turn there, or as always, it's printed in your bulletin. Let me begin by just reflecting on turbulence on an airplane. You know, most of us get a little antsy when we're flying and we encounter some bad and rough and heavy turbulence. Uh, Especially the very first time that happens to you when you're an airline traveler. You know, you're sitting there in your seat, you're looking forward, and, and everybody's heads are, you know, bobbling and waggling uh, in front of you. Maybe the plane drops and your stomach drops with it, and you feel like you're on a roller coaster. For the very first time, you know, that happens, it, it, it's, it's rather disheartening. What can help is if you're seated next to a seasoned business traveler, someone who has logged thousands of hours up in the air, and they look at you and they say, nothing to worry about, right? You know, this is normal. Everything's under control. By that same token, I guess, what's downright terrifying is when, when you're sitting next to the seasoned business traveler and he looks at you and he has that look on his face that he's terrified. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, you, sometimes you even see it on the faces of the airline stewardesses. Maybe one of the overhead bins comes unlatched and she's walking down the aisle. And you can tell just by the look on her face, this is not normal. This is abnormal. This is dangerous. Uh, when seasoned travelers know that things are bad, then um, you have something to worry about. But we have just such a, an episode in our passage today on the Sea of Galilee. So the, just to get their geography straight, the Sea of Galilee is a very large freshwater lake in northern Israel, about 13 miles long by 7 miles wide. One of the lowest points, places on earth, it's about 700 feet below sea level. I, I didn't realize that, but it, it is. And it's kind of in the shape of a bowl. Only 30 miles to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee is a place called Mount Hermon, which is like 9,000, 9,500 or so feet. So within about the width of the Treasure Valley, three miles, you have a 10,000 feet elevation change. And so what happens when you get cold air mixing with, you know, warm, moist air? You know, violent storms are the norm. And I mean, even today, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, there are actually, there are signs along the lake that say, basically, beware of storm <laughs> because it's so, so common. And, and, you know, these are, these are several of the disciples that are in, in this boat that we're going to read about are seasoned fishermen accustomed to these kinds of storms. Well, back, and one other piece of information, back in 1986, it was a drought year in Israel. And so the, the Sea of Galilee was at record low water levels, historic lows. And there were two Jewish brothers, both of whom are fishermen, both of whom come from a family who has been fishing the lake for generations. And, and it was kind of always their aspiration to one day be able to find uh, an old boat that had, you know, just an archaeological discovery of uh, a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And so they went around in 86 searching the exposed beaches. And sure enough, they discovered a boat that was buried in one of the shores that radiocarboned back to the first century. Have anybody seen this? It's called the Jesus Boat. Yeah, the Jesus Boat. And I think it, it's in a museum. Is, is the museum, Marshall, up around the Sea of Galilee or is it down in, in Jerusalem? It's on the Sea of Galilee. And so the boat is 27 feet long, 
by about seven feet wide, and the sides of the boat would have only been about four and a half in- feet tall, not inches tall, <laughs> four and a half feet tall. So if you get the picture, long, very shallow bottom boats with sails that would have been commonly used for fishing. And they called it Jesus' boat, not because, I mean, Jesus probably didn't travel on that boat, but it did radiocarbon back to the first century. And it's a pretty good likelihood that that was very similar dimensions of the type of boat that they were uh, in. And so think about it, four and a half feet sides, no windshield. <laughs> I mean, they were completely exposed as this storm hits them. They, they are just utterly nakedly exposed out there. The wind is pushing waves over the sides of this boat, and this group of men, seasoned fishermen, can't bail the water quickly enough, and it just terrifies them. They know this is abnormal. They know they've never been in a storm quite like this before, and they think they're going to die. Let's read it. Okay. 822. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going we're gonna to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Let's pray. Our our gracious Father in heaven, thank you for this incident um, in the life of Jesus and his disciples that are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Um, We pray that you would help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us and to believe. Uh, Some of us, we... We come into this room with you know, grave doubts about our faith, and maybe we're wondering, can we believe? We, we pray that you would open our hearts to, maybe to believe again. Um, Father, some of us come in here, and, and we have like secret sins that are just de- torpedoing our lives, and they are, they are making our lives a miserable wreck, and we're, we're frightened by those, and we're wondering if you will have us back. Would you speak to us? Uh, would you speak to every one of us? W- whatever light that we need to kind of break through our cloud, would you shine that? And would you speak just, you know, one sentence or, or one set of, set of words for us to truly meet with you and hear from you? I mean, some of us have not engaged with you for a long time. Um, but would you enable us to do that right now through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord? And God's people said, amen. So here's Jesus. Wind roaring, waves pounding. Uh, it's, it's like a hurricane that he's in. And he stands up, and maybe he shakes the cobwebs out of his head because he just woke up. Stands up and he says, be quiet and stay quiet. And suddenly everything is dead calm. There's a dead calm. Some of the other gospels just say that it was completely calm, which is not the way things normally would happen if you had a storm. Even if the storm stopped instantaneously, it would take a while for the water to become dead calm. But it was dead calm. Be quiet. Stay quiet. That's the, that's the way that 
a teacher would probably speak to an unruly class of students. And that's what, he, that's what he says to a hurricane. Here's Jesus, just moments before. What's he doing? He's curled up asleep. Now let me ask you this question. How tired do you have to be as a human being to look at the back of a wooden boat in the middle of a storm and be able to sleep through that? I mean, what we have here is the picture, it's the picture of a man who has reached the point of absolute physical exhaustion. Like when I read this story, the thought, the thought that comes into my mind is honestly a Navy SEAL during Hell Week. You know, part of their training is they're supposed to, they keep, they keep those guys up for 72 hours straight. And by the end of those 72 hours, I mean, they are passing out while on their feet you know, they're falling asleep in the mess hall and their food. They're falling asleep on the firing range as guys are shooting M17s. That really does happen. Why? Because the human body has limits. And what we have here, I think, is a picture of a man who has kind of transgressed those limits. You know, day after day, he's been preaching, he's been healing, he's been teaching, he's been, you know, eating, he's been traveling, he's been doing all of these kinds of things. And, and finally, he is just to the point of utter physical exhaustion. So here we're left with one of the great mysteries of Christian theology, right? How, how, do, how can one man possess that much power and that much weakness? You know, how do you have one uh, such incomparable power that's able to still the waves and yet that level of exhaustion coupled in the same, same man? Such a mystery. And the theologians down through the years have tried to explain it with one statement. They call this the hypostatic union. Uh, that Jesus has two natures and one hypostasis or one substance. He has a human nature and a divine nature. Those are both present in his humanity. They never mix together. That one doesn't take over the other. That somehow they're both perfectly present and perfectly operative. So the all-powerful divine nature doesn't keep the human nature from getting tired, and the human nature doesn't keep the divine nature from being able to do miracles, and it's such, such a mystery. You know, it's going to be amazing when we, um, I'm thinking of Easter, like after the resurrection, when we are in heaven, like these are the types of things we get to ask him about face-to-face one day. We get to ask him, you're like, Lord, I've read about the hypostatic union before. I have, I've affirmed that you have a human nature and a divine nature, but how did that work? I'd really like to know. And that's part of the depths of the mysteries that uh, we, you know, as an Easter people, get to eagerly anticipate. I can't wait. Can you wait? You no, know, I hope not. Going back to the divine nature. Now, an astute reader of this passage is going to hear all kinds of echoes from the Old Testament, particularly echoes from the Psalms uh, and this event of the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So the Psalms that you may want to write down that I have in mind, Psalm 65, Psalm 89, (coughs) Psalm 93, In each of these psalms, uh, Yahweh, the creator God, is the one who rules the raging of the sea and the storms. Uh, Psalm 107, probably the most significant parallel passage to this is Psalm 107, where it says, and let me read it for you, that it's these guys who go out uh, on a ship. 
It says, others went out in, on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. A tempest lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens on, on the waters, and they went down into the depths. And in their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Yet they cried out to Yahweh, the Lord, in their trouble. And Yahweh brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. What's happening? Jesus is pulling a Psalm 107 on these guys. Who can tame the waves of evil and chaos? Who can push back the waters of the Red Sea? You know, always in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh, it's Yahweh, it's Yahweh. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, it's me. I am that power. And I get really, really tired sometimes. And I I am both. And that's going to be one of the most awesome things in the universe to explore with him. Look with me at verse 22. Transition to the kind of second point of the sermon. I think verse 22 is the portion of the passage we normally gloss over. We should read right through it. Verse 22. Whose idea was it to cross to the other side of the lake? We read, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. Whose idea was it? Jesus' idea. 100% Jesus' idea. It was his idea to lead them on this excursion. And what's perfectly obvious, isn't it, is if he has the power to, to stop the storm, he probably has the power to keep the storm from coming up in the first place. But he doesn't. Because he... He, he could have, if he wanted to, he could have given them a nice little day sailing, smooth waters, and a comfortable tailwind. But no, he wanted to, them to cross through stormy waters. And so it was obviously his idea to lead this, in, in, uh, or sorry, to lead them into this storm. He, he wanted them in the storm. And you know, this too has very strong echoes from the Psalms. Some of your, your most beloved Psalms are basically Psalms with water in them. <laughs> What do I mean by that? Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams uh, of living water, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's as the, as the deer psalm. Do you know what else it says in Psalm 42? It says, and by the way, all of your, your waves and your breakers, they have crashed over me. It's this picture of the feeling of being lost in the raging waters of life. Uh, something we're all so familiar with. I mean, life is is pretty much storm after storm after storm after storm. And he says, and isn't it interesting? Have you ever noticed the possessive, the possessive pronoun that the psalmist uses in Psalm 42? He doesn't say all the waves and the breakers. He doesn't use an article. He's just, he says all your waves and your breakers. These are God's waves. Like, and he sent me into them. Very echoey of this, of this passage. And then another example, our great Reformation Psalm, Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. It goes on to say that even though the waters roar and foam, I will not be afraid because you are my rock and refuge in the chaos of the storm. Recall that? Uh, and 
the disciples, they could have re- replied with Psalm 46, but they're really not that pious. <laughs> they're not that spiritually developed. And so they don't, um, they don't respond that way, do they? I, actually, I love, don't you love the way they respond here in verse 24? Look at verse 24. One of the things you should do as you are reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is just pay attention to the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. And if you trace it carefully, what you'll discover is that very often what they say to Jesus mimics what we say to Jesus. Or maybe better put, what we say to Jesus mimics what they say to Jesus. Our words, we really end up saying the same types of things that the the disciples say. Like anybody who has ever gone and tried to live a life of faith has said this before. Lord, don't you realize I'm drowning? God, don't you see the storm I am going through? Are you asleep? Are you indifferent? Don't you realize I'm going to drown? We say those things. Um, We respond in sadness sometimes. Some of us respond in sadness. Some of us respond in anger. Uh, But all of us end up responding, Don't you care that I'm about to drown? Elizabeth Elliot tells a great story about watching sheep being put into a vat of insecticide. About once every couple of months, uh, the, the sheep are submerged in this big barrel of insecticide because if they don't, they'll get eaten up by insect bites. They'll become bloated and, and they may possibly die. But when she's talking about when the sheep are put into the vat, you know, the sheep don't have a very good perspective on why this is happening. You know, as the shepherd is pushing their heads down uh, into, the, into the water, the, the sheep thinks, what kind of shepherd is this? He's drowning me. Because um, they're sheep. And the shepherd is a higher order of being. <laughs> and the sheep can't see the big picture. You know, whenever we find ourselves in trials, isn't, isn't a large part of uh, just the challenge of facing it is just to know that these are God's waters these are his waves. This is his plan. This is his purpose. It is his plan for me to pass through these waters. He is a higher order of being than I, I am. He, it was his idea that we would go across this lake. He, he must have a good reason for doing this. Isn't that just, like, isn't that part of the key? And it's just to realize that. Um, uh, similarly, nowadays in, in football, Every head coach on every college football or, or pro football sideline, nowadays they all have a headset with a microphone attached. You know, back in Bear Bryant's day, they didn't have that. <laughs> but they have that. I mean, Nick Saban, he's got his headset and mic. Why is that? Because he's talking to the coaches way up high at the top of the stadium, um, which is in some of these stadiums really, really high. <laughs> and he's asking them, what's going on, guys? Because because Nick Saban, as smart as he is, and as well as he knows football, he's so close to the action, he doesn't really know what's going on. It's only the guys that are way up there who have the best perspective. The people who are closest to the action tend to have the very poorest of perspectives. And so Saban's yelling, cursing into his mic, you know, why are they running the ball on us? And it's the guys up there who are saying, well, it's because the linebackers 
are, are playing too deep or because the safeties are, are playing too high or, or whatever. Very often, those who are closest have the poorest understanding just simply because they can't see the big picture. And that, of course, that's us. That's us. So you just have to remember, either, if either you are a person who gets mad at God or a person who gets sad at God, and we're almost always one or the other, <laughs> you have to remember if God is great enough and powerful enough to be mad at or sad at because he didn't keep you from your sufferings, you also have a God who is wise enough and intelligent enough to have very good reasons for making you go through them. Very good reasons for saying, let's take a boat to the other side. And just remember that. Remember that the God, and there's actually a psalm, if somebody wants to um, yell it out because they have it memorized, there's a psalm, oh, I can't remember what it is, where the psalmist cries out to God and says, God, why are you asleep? You know the one I'm talking about? Does anybody remember? Like, God does feel like he's asleep sometimes. You know, Jesus feels like he's asleep, but we are not to mistake that as some kind of cold indifference. It's not. There is love behind it. Uh, before I move on, there's one other funny thing to think about. Imagine these guys, they go into synagogue next Saturday, and the synagogue reading happens to be none other than Psalm 107. Imagine how different that psalm would sound to them after they had gone through this experience and it had been kind of reinterpreted by Jesus for them. Wouldn't that shin, sins just shivers down their spine? I mean, it completely, like when you know Christ, it completely opens up the way that you read and hear the scriptures afterwards. All right, so let's move on. We've looked at verse 22. Now uh, the disciples' response to Jesus. Now let's look at verse 25. Jesus' response to the disciples. And uh, 25. Jesus hardly ever replies the way we expect him to reply. Something also to always keep in mind in your dealings with him. He will rarely reply the way you expect him to reply. So he doesn't go back to them and, and say, guys, oh, I understand how you must have been feeling. That must have been really frightening experience. Oh, wow. Near-death experience. Talk to me more about your feelings. No, he doesn't say that. He says, where is your faith? He asks his disciples, where is your faith? It's not that you don't have faith, but it's not showing up right now. You have it, and you're just not using it. And just as I said, oftentimes our words to Jesus, or their words to Jesus mimic our words to Jesus. Isn't it? Doesn't it work the opposite way? So often Jesus' words to the disciples mimic the very things that he says to us. I mean, there are some moments in your life where you can almost hear the voice of Jesus just audibly talking to you out of the pages of Scripture and saying the exact same thing back to you. In this case, where's your faith, man? Where's your faith? He's, he's pushing back. He's challenging them. He, he's not doing um, the, the normal kind of counseling, you know, Rogerian therapy techniques that, that we're, uh, we're tra trained as counselors. I got a, a counseling minor from my seminary degree. You're supposed to listen to people and just repeat back their feelings to them. No, he's pushing. He's pushing back on them very, very heavily. Uh, I wonder what it, I wonder what tone 
Because tone is everything. I just wonder what tone he, he said this in. So bear with me. There's that great scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke's X-Wing fighter is submerged in the Dagobah swamp. And part of his training is he's supposed to close his eyes, reach out his hand with a force, and you know, lift the X-Wing out of the, the swamp. And he tries, tries, you know, at first you don't succeed, try, try again. He does. He tries again. He, he, he's not successful. So, you know, up hobbles Yoda, <laughs> hobbles up there, and, you know, he does it quite perfectly. He lick, lifts the X-Wing out of the swamp and just very gently sets it down onto the solid ground. All right, what if you're out driving and a car is coming straight at you, uh, and you know that you're going to be in a collision. And everybody I've ever talked to who's ever been in a crash says that when you know you're about to get, be hit by somebody, everything goes in slow motion, you know, freeze frame, frame by frame by frame. And you're freeze framing. Imagine the person sitting next to you pulls out a Yoda, and at that moment, they just, ooh, and they take that car and they gently set it down to the side of you. That takes a lot of imagination, doesn't it? <laughs> How would you feel? How would you feel? What would you think? What would you think? You would be terrified. Who is this that is sitting next to me? And you would be amazed. Those are the two things that are recorded. Terrified and amazed. Terrified, who has who has this power? And amazed, amazed that, okay then, if, if you are here with me, then everything is going to be okay. You have everything under control. If you are in the boat, if you are in the car, if you can do this, then he, he, He's telling them, I don't, and so it just helps me think of the tone. He's telling them that you must trust me in these moments. In moments like these, you really must trust me. Because what matters to Jesus is forging a relationship with us that is based upon, that's built on faith and in trust. And if you have the sea in all of its uncontrollable fury, and that's a metaphor for the storm after storm he will lead us into in this life, then you also need to, to hear him challenge you and say, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I'm here. I'm in the car with you. I'm in the life with you. I'm, I'm here with you. The words of John uh, 6.13, or, I'm sorry, 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 6.33 are also very, very comforting. Remember those words of Jesus? He said, in this world ye shall have tribulation. You will have tribulation. You will have storm. You will have tribulation. But what? But be of comfort. Or the the old King James Version. But be of good cheer. For I have overcome. I have overcome the world. And what does that mean? That means that because he died on the cross, because he rose from the dead, because it's just a matter of time before he comes back and puts everything right again, because he has defeated death and death no longer has any ultimate ability to triumph over him or over those who believe in him, because he has overcome the world, it'll be okay. The storms are just temporary. And the storms, they cannot overcome us. 
And so the key in those moments is just to tell your, is to talk to yourself. Remember the, uh, the greatest, I think the greatest quote of D, the famous Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, where he says, have you realized that most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? It's true. You know, our fears are always talking to us and prognosticating the absolute worst in the future where there is no God present and you just got to tell yourself, you got to tell yourself the things like, I have overcome. Be of good cheer. You push back by faith. Well, let me conclude with the uh, final Old Testament echo that I want to highlight in this passage. And this one is not from the Psalms. It's actually, you may have already guessed it. It's from the book of Jonah, the famous account of Jonah. Mm. Burmy, in the, uh, the, in the boat, in the storm, in the Old Testament, and Jonah chapter 1. And a lot of scholars have done this. They compare the account of Jesus in, in the boat and, and Jonah in the boat. And there's a, a surprisingly large number of similarities. At a minimum, there are seven similarities between the two. First, both Jesus and Jonah are out on the sea in a boat. Okay. Second, both Jesus and Jonah's boats are overtaken by a storm. Third, the description of the storm, especially in some of the other gospel accounts, the description of the storm is almost identical in both instances. Fourth, both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the storm. Big one. Fifth, the sailors come to the sleeper and they say, they say, we're drowning. You've got to do something. Sixth, in both cases, there's a miraculous intervention by God, and the sea is calmed. And in seventh, in both stories, at the end, they're more frightened than they were at the beginning. <laughs> and so you say, these are almost identical stories. There's only one little itty-bitty difference, isn't there? Do you remember what it is? Jonah says to the other sailors, I must die in order for you to live. Jonah says to the other sailors, you must throw me into the, the chaos, the raging water, the storm. I must perish in order for you to live. Um, and they throw him in. Now, did that happen in this story? Well, you know, no, but yes. <laughs> and that's what the whole gospel of Luke is building to. Uh, Good Friday. So my, I, I, um, the translation I use on most Sundays is the Bible that I grew up with, which was the old NIV, 1984 NIV. They've since updated it. I'm not, not a big fan of the update. Usually think that NIV 84, good translation. Uh, they made a mistake, I think an important mistake, in their interpretive decision today. And I want you to look at verse 24. Because in this passage, where... The NIV translates it, Master, Master, we are going to drown. The word there is not the common word, Greek word for drowning. It's actually the Greek word for perish. And so everybody else who doesn't have an NIV who's looking at their Bible right now reads the word perish. Master, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Very same word is the word that's used in the Jonah account, in the Greek translation of Jonah's account. That very same word, where, is it, where else does that word perish show up significantly in the Bible? John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How much does, God, does our God care that we are perishing? He cares so much that he enters into our own mortality. He will enter into our humanity and let himself perish brutally on the upcoming Good Friday that we might never perish. And so, yeah, Jonah's story is just this foreshadowing of what's going to happen in Luke's gospel and Matthew, Mark, John's gospel of Jesus, the true Jonah. Do you not care that we are perishing? That's his answer to that question. And we're approaching the day when we will commemorate it. Brothers and sisters, um, I hope you will, like, we don't do a real good job of outreach at All Saints to, to the non-Christian community. And um, that, uh, we have some ideas on how to improve that. Um, the, the lowest hanging fruit in the world is to invite somebody to Good Friday service or in, invite somebody to Easter Sunday and just have them come and hear the story. Uh, would you do that? Would you, I'll do my best to preach, preach with all my heart. Would you, would you invite somebody who is not a Christian or is unchurched, who has no connection to, to the faith right now, and invite them to come and to, and to hear. Um, on Easter Sunday, if we have a lot of people, can we just already be prepared to scooch in and go out of our way to make, it, make ourselves as welcoming as, as we can? Because our whole faith is building up to Good Friday and Easter. He who died and rose again and overcome the world did so that we might be of good cheer. And that he might, we might know him to be the Lord of the wind and the waves, you know, of all of the relentless storms in our lives. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Amen.